Well, good morning. It is good to worship the one true God together. And thank you for sharing in that. I want to share with you, we're doing an intercessory prayer ministry in our church where we're asking people to commit to pray for our church and the kingdom at a designated time slot each week for at least 15 minutes. Uh, we have 135 people signed up so far. We praise God for that. We have 33 slots left. Today will be the last day to sign up at the Welcome Center. After that, you'll need to contact uh, someone to do that. So if you haven't signed up, would you consider taking a time slot to pray every week for a 15-minute period? It'll, if you haven't done that before, it'll be a growth point in your life as you learn to pray intercessory prayers and it, I believe it'll undergird the work of our church because God does His work, spiritual work, through prayer. Next Sunday is the Super Bowl. Last year's Super Bowl, the largest watched television event ever in history. So we want to take advantage of that and bring the gospel to people watching the Super Bowl. So I want to encourage you uh, to consider hosting a Super Bowl party next Sunday evening. Invite your connection group today. Invite your neighbors or invite your family or invite your friends. And we've put together a 10-minute video that you can show before the Super Bowl. Our staff predicts the winner of the game. Then we transition into talking about how God is the perfect predictor of the future and a gospel message there. And so you can pick that DVD up next Sunday morning at the Welcome Center. And you just, wherever you are, say, hey, let's watch this before the game. And plan it out about 10 minutes before whatever you want to see, the national anthem or whatever. So would you consider today, think about hosting and uh, that, or a gathering, and then pick that up uh, next Sunday. I'm sharing a series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount entitled, Live Differently. This is Jesus teaching to his followers, to those of us who have declared our faith in Jesus, about how we're supposed to live. And the theme, I think, is that we're supposed to live differently. We can't be like everybody else. There has to be a distinctiveness to our lives. And we saw in the Beatitudes that if we will commit to live differently, it's a life of blessing. The most blessed life in the world is when you follow Jesus. And then we saw last week that if we live differently, we can be people of influence. You want to make a difference in the world? Jesus said, you follow me and live a different life, you'll be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now today, we're coming to the real body of the sermon. That's sort of his setting it up. What does this different life look like? How are we supposed to be different? Well, today we begin to understand what Jesus says about how we're supposed to be different. And so, it's a demanding sermon. We're getting into the demanding parts of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. So are you ready? You, you buckled up? You braced? You ready to begin to see what Jesus is calling us to live different lives? We began in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17, and Jesus there starts this section by sharing his relationship to the Old Testament. 
Very practical issue for us as Christians. How do we relate to the Old Testament? And Jesus says in verse 17, Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, why would Jesus start out this section with that? Don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets were a title in the Bible for the Old Testament. That's the two major divisions of the Old Testament in the Hebrew arrangement of the book. Same books as we have in the Old Testament, arranged differently. They called it the law and the prophets. So that's the Old Testament. Why would Jesus start by saying, I haven't come to abolish the Old Testament? Two reasons. One, because the enemies of Jesus were accusing his disciples of doing just that. They didn't wash their hands ritually before they ate. They were picking grain on the Sabbath and eating it. They were working on the Sabbath, and they were accusing him of abolishing Old Testament laws. But also because we're about to enter a section here of six uh, examples where Jesus is going to contrast his teaching to the accepted interpretation of the Old Testament. And so he's setting us up for what he's about to say. He wants us to know, first of all, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. But rather, he said, I have come to fulfill the Old Testament. How does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? I think in three ways. First of all, the Old Testament predicted a Messiah, and Jesus completely fulfills those predictions. Secondly, Jesus kept all of the laws of the Old Testament. Nobody else has ever done it. Jesus did it. He is the perfect Savior. He kept all of the Old Testament. He fulfilled it in that way. Third, he fulfilled it by summing up all of the ceremonial law and the sacrificial system and bring it to fullness by being a perfect sacrifice and keeping all of that. So Jesus says, I didn't come to, to abolish the law or prophets. I've come to fulfill them. He says in verse 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So Jesus has a high view of the Old Testament. He says, not a jot or tittle, not the smallest letter, a yod or a jot, it's the smallest Hebrew letter, it looks like an apostrophe, and then not the least stroke of a pen. A tittle was just a, the make like we do a, a J and you curl it up. That little curl up there is like that, that tittle, that least stroke of a pen. He says everything in the Old Testament is going to remain until heaven and earth pass away. And he says then in verse 19, Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let me tell you one reason I believe the Old Testament. You know there's some strange stuff in the Old Testament? Did you know that? Uh, did you know there's a donkey that talks? Did you know there's a sea that stands up into walls and people walk through? Did you know there's a woman who turns into a pillar of salt? Did you know there's an axe head that floats? There's some strange stuff in the Old Testament. Let me tell you, I believe every word of it. You know, one of the reasons I believe it is because Jesus said not a word of it would pass away. And I've come to believe Jesus is trustworthy. Anybody who rises from the dead knows what they're talking about, I believe. And Jesus says the Old Testament is true. So I believe the Bible. Because my Savior, who I believe died and rose again, said that he believed it, and he said for us not to take anything away from it. Amen. So now, here's a, this is a real practical little section for us as Christians, because a lot of Christians, I think, 
um, are two errors about the Old Testament. First of all, there are some who have too low a view of the Old Testament. I won't name those denominations or groups, but you may have come from a group that never taught from the Old Testament, never preached from the Old Testament, uh, sort of put down anything the Old Testament said, and they need to hear the first phrase of what Jesus said, I did not come to abolish it. Uh, now, there's a, a second extreme, and there are groups and individuals who think that the Old Testament applies to us as believers exactly as it did then. And they need to hear the phrase, I have fulfilled it. There are those who say, oh, we've got to worship on Saturday because it says the Sabbath there, or we've got to keep the Old Testament food laws because those still apply to us, and so they have dietary restrictions or Sabbath worship. They need to hear what Jesus said about, I've come to fulfill it. You see the two extremes there you can get into as a Christian about your use of the Old Testament? It doesn't matter. You need to hear Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it. Or it applies to us exactly as it did in the day before. You need to hear Jesus said, I've come to fulfill it. Let me just give you an example of the food laws. i I've worked when I was in seminary in a print shop and worked with Christians who's, who really looked down on me because I didn't keep the Levitical food laws. They were convinced it was still true. And I read to them, let me show you a verse I read to them. Mark chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus says, for, what, uh, for the food doesn't go into your heart but into your stomach and then out of your body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Can bacon lovers give me a hallelujah right there, Okay. <laughs> Shrimp lovers, lobster lovers, those foods are prohibited in the Old Covenant, but Jesus, he didn't come to abolish it now. He came to fulfill it. So that ceremonial sacrificial system has been fulfilled in him, and he has declared all foods clean. You see there the balance that we need to have about the Old Testament. Okay, he's setting us up for what comes here. So in the next verse, verse 20, Matthew 5, 20, Jesus drops the bombshell, here's the, here's the big word to us, sort of a shocker. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Now, the, the, the uh, teachers of the law or the scribes were sort of like the professional interpreters of the Bible, like a seminary professor or a Bible scholar. They, they were ordained at age 40. They spent their whole life up to age 40 training. And then at age 40, they could become a teacher of the law or a scribe. And then the Pharisees dedicated their lives to keeping the law so much so they couldn't, common people couldn't be a Pharisee because your work schedule and the things you came into contact with would not allow you to keep the law as a Pharisee. So these were the best of the best. And Jesus is saying Unless your righteousness exceeds that of seminary professors and preachers, you don't have a ghost of a chance of getting into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, really? That's, that's what he's saying in verse 20. Where does that leave me? What in the world does that mean? What is this surpassing righteousness? Unless your righteousness surpasses and is greater than these experts, then you don't have any chance of getting in the kingdom of heaven. What in the world is Jesus saying here in this? What is this righteousness? Well, in the sections that follow, we're going to spend the next three weeks or so looking at them, Jesus gives six examples of what he's talking about when he contrasts the accepted view of the Old Testament and his teaching. In verse 
uh, 21, all of these six begin with this formula. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So Jesus takes the current interpretation and then talks about that surpassing righteousness that must characterize his followers. Look at verse 21. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Well, that's one of the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment, right? And he said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Verse 22, but I tell you, Jesus is teaching with authority, the authority greater than a man, but I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So Jesus says uh, that if you're angry without cause, you've broken that commandment. Jesus takes the commandment and gives it a deeper level that goes beyond actions to attitudes and to thoughts. And so we may be sort of feel pretty good about our righteousness. You read the sixth commandment, you shall not commit murder. And I'm betting most of you haven't committed murder here today. I bet most of you are saying, hey, got that one, didn't do that one. At least, you know, that's one of the ten, and at least I, I can check that one off. And then Jesus comes along and drives it deeper and says, you're, you're, you're self-righteous just because you haven't committed the act. But what's in your heart, he says, is what I care about. And the action is important, but what about the attitude or the thought behind that? And some of you have wanted to kill somebody. Some of you have been so angry at somebody. And that because you have not committed the act does not make you righteous. I'm looking at your heart. You see, here's the deal. The new covenant is internal. Uh, let me read to you Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, verse 33. Jeremiah 31, 33 is a prophecy in the Old Testament of this new covenant. And it says, this is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they will be my people. So here's the deal. The, the new covenant is internal. So the righteousness of the new covenant involves attitudes as well as actions. You see? The righteousness of the new covenant goes deeper to thoughts, motives, attitudes. That's what he's talking about when he's saying your righteousness must surpass these, the common religion of the day. He's saying that they're, they're just <coughs> proud that they haven't committed the act. But I'm looking at your heart. And anger, he says, is of the same vein as murder. The shooter at Fort Lauderdale Airport, when we think, man, that's terrible. I'd, I'd never do anything like that. And here comes Jesus along and telling us, you've got more in common with that shooter than you do with holy God. You're of the same vein because there is that anger in your heart. That sort of sets us back, doesn't it? Sort of shocks us a little bit. Look at what, read again verse 22, what Jesus says here. He says, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which was an Aramaic word that questions somebody's intelligence. Some translations have tried to paraphrase it. You idiot, you blockhead, you nitwit. 
he's answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, which is another insult that sort of questions your moral character. It's the word moros, which we get our word moron from. You moron or you person of questionable character. He says, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Wow. Now let me say a word about hell. Here's our first mention of hell in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to mention it several times. You don't know why I believe in hell? Because Jesus, who died and rose again, believed in hell. And I have found him to be trustworthy because he rose from the dead. And Jesus spoke of hell. He's going to speak of it several times in this sermon. And there's a popular idea today that we don't need to ever talk about judgment or anything. We just need to talk about love like Jesus did. Well, if you read the Bible, that's, that just doesn't wash. Because Jesus, who, yes, is the greatest embodiment of love in the world, also spoke of the reality of hell. And to top it off, he said, I'm going there because if you're angry or you insult your brother, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Well, isn't this a verse we really need to hear in our public discussion today? Listen, folks, what, uh, there is a righteous anger. Jesus got angry. But that anger, which is a murderous intent, is that which questions the worth of a person. You hear it here? You're going to a person, and you call a person idiot, blockhead, moron, fool. And what we've got to get to in our nation is where we can discuss some issues without calling, without going to the worth of people. And that's not where we are, is it? You listen to the dialogue, you watch the news, you hear the marches, you read it on social media, and we are so angry with one another, aren't we? And we have every right to talk about immigration and President Trump, and, and we have every right to talk about homosexuality and abortion this week. And, but let us do that and, and not denigrate the person on the other side. They are people of worth, and God loves them. And our anger toward the individual is different than our anger about the issue. We ought to be angry about some issues in our nation. That's righteous anger. But when we have hatred for an individual who has that lifestyle or holds that opinion different than us, then we are questioning the worth of that person. You see the difference there? You hear what Jesus is saying to us? Bringing that commandment down to our attitudes and our hearts. And he's saying, your righteousness is going to have to be deeper if you follow me. Yeah, everybody else is going to act like that. Everybody else is going to feel good they haven't murdered somebody and they check that box. But I say to you, if you follow me, you're going to have to live differently. And I care about what's in your heart. And anger is of that, of, like that is of the same character, he says, as murder. Maybe there's some anger in your life today, and you need to recognize that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, if you and I are going to be a follower of Jesus, we can't talk to people like everybody else. We can't feel toward people like our culture is. We're going to have to be different in our dialogue with respect for people without ever compromising our beliefs. Jesus said, Whoever says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. Then he turns from the negative to the positive. And so he says in verse 23, Therefore deal with anger quickly and seek reconciliation. The rest of these verses might be summed up in that sentence. Because anger is dangerous and because it is of akin to murder, you need to deal with your anger promptly or quickly 
And then positively, you need to seek reconciliation where possible. Let me read these verses. Verse 23, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So he says, your anger towards somebody else is going to interfere with your worship. And you don't want to let it simmer, so you just get up from church and go deal with it, he says. And then, so if it's a brother, he says you need to, you want to, you want to reconcile quickly. Now, I've heard Christians apply this verse to every little slight. You've got to look at the whole counsel of God. You don't need to go tell everybody every time you're angry with them. If they don't know it, don't go tell them. Let, let love cover a multitude of sins. That's what the Bible says. Some of us, we take every little slight and we've got to blow it up into a, a, a big thing. Some of it, you just, you're just going to let love cover a multitude of sins. So you don't have to go talk to everybody about every little thing. That's not what this is saying. But when there has obviously been division in a relationship with a fellow Christian, and both of you know that's hurting the relationship and anger is festering and, and growing there, then Jesus says, then you, you need to deal with that. And if possible, it won't always be possible, but if possible, you need to seek reconciliation with that person. And Jesus has the same principle about our adversaries. Verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. The judge will hand you over to the officer. You may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you'll not get out until you've paid the last penny. So he's still talking about the escalating nature of anger, and you don't want to let it escalate. Settle out of court if you can. Let's do this quickly, promptly, because anger escalates and anger affects other relationships. And so he says, when it is doing that in your life, you need to deal with it promptly. God's saying anything to you today about your attitudes and your actions toward people? Is he saying anything to you about some anger that's churning deep within you? And there's been a facade of, of righteousness like the Pharisees and the scribes had. My wife and I used to have a mahogany dining room table, but it wasn't solid mahogany. It was, what, it was veneer. You know what veneer is? Veneer is one thing on the top and something else underneath. Veneer is mahogany on the top. It could be fiberboard underneath. But there's that appearance, that gloss. That was the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. No murder. Good. Got it. I'm in great shape, Jesus says. But I say to you, I care about what's under the veneer. So you need to look, peel back the veneer today and look at your heart and say, God, uh, is there anger that does not please you? Is there reconciliation I need to seek? Well, that's the first of our six examples. Let me sum up. As we leave, what this idea of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Here it is. You're in big trouble. Because you're not righteous. You probably thought you were, had a little smugness, haven't murdered anybody. Now Jesus takes it so deep that you and I are not righteous. Because our hearts are full of anger. The good news is there is one who has fulfilled the law and prophets. He's kept it all. And he has an infinite supply of righteousness. 
and he offers a transaction to you. You ever written a check to somebody or made an online transfer? And stuff comes out of your account and goes to somebody else's account. Here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus will write you a check for righteousness. It'll come out of his account, and it'll go into your account. And your sin, your anger, will go out of his account and into yours, and you will be what the Bible calls justified or reconciled. You ever reconciled books? You'll be made right. But that's not all the story. Some people think that that salvation is just justification. It is also conversion or transformation. And there are a lot of religious people in our world today who are not going to heaven. Jesus said it here. If your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the scribes or Pharisees, then you are in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. You will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the problem in the Bible Belt is we've got a lot of people who walked an aisle or prayed a prayer sometime in the past and it has had no effect on their lives and they think that they are going to heaven when they're not. Because salvation is not just that, uh, that check, that justification. It is also conversion or transformation. And now what Jesus is telling us in this sermon, here's some ways you can see if you're following me. Because if you're following me, you will not be perfect, but there will be transformation. You will begin to live differently. Different living will characterize my followers. And so if you have thought that you were self-righteous, perhaps you need to look at your life and say, do I know the Lord? Because when I come to Him and receive His righteousness, He'll begin to produce in me a different kind of of living. Would you stand together with me? We're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to invite you to accept Jesus' offer that he will transfer his righteousness from his account to yours. He'll do that if you put your faith in him. And he will also cause you to be born again so that you'll be converted or changed. You'll have his spirit within you, in your heart, so that you can begin to live a different life in his power. What a wonderful offer. The way you respond to that or indicate that in our church, just walk forward, meet a pastor here. If you need somebody to pray with you, we'll pray with you. There are two requirements for joining our church. That you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and that you've been baptized by immersion as a sign of that faith. If you've done those two things or you're willing to do those two things, I want to invite you to come forward and, and confess Christ and be a part of this church family. As God speaks to you, Would you come? Maybe you need to pray with somebody. Maybe you're struggling to live that new life and that anger is is really uh, tough for you. There'll be somebody pray with you for the power of the Holy Spirit as you're in that process of transformation. As God speaks to you, would you come?